All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we have Alfred O'Neill with us. He is a best-selling author who grew up uh, going to a private school paid for by a mobster father, uh, rocks out to the Grateful Dead and Beethoven for inspiration. Uh, he reads comics to never lose his inner child and disregards most of society's rules, except for the importance of decency, empathy, and humanity. Roll it all up. He gathers and tells his story. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Tyler. Of course. Pumped to have you here. So, you know, there's a lot of questions, but the first one that sticks out is the mobster father, which you, you may have uh, guessed. <laughs> that was like highlighted when I read your intro. It wasn't actually, but in my brain, I mean, it was highlighted. So question. So tell us more about that first. Then I have some deeper questions, but your your father was in the mob in the mob. Yes. Yeah, so I, I um, much like the stories I write or just the way I'm, I'm wired uh, is a lot of contradicting dualities, right? So one, the biggest and the, well, the seminal one in my life was the fact that my father, Irish, which means he couldn't be a made man, um, was a money launderer and a schemer for the mob uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, very low level, but uh, let's just say my entire childhood was filled with um, having to leave town during mob wars, uh, the FBI bugging our house. Um, I met at least two or three different federal agents who were following my father uh, because he would fool them and go circle around them and come up behind them and go, hey, Jim. And the guy would go, ah, and grab his earpiece. And my dad would go, Jim, this is my son, Alfred. Alfred, this is the FBI agent who's been sent to tail me. He said, have a good one, Jim. We're going to keep walking. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that happened several times. And that actually is my childhood. Meanwhile, I'm going to a Quaker school founded by William Penn himself. He was not alive at the time. Um, and it's a school of principles. It's a school of, of, of ethics and values. And I mean, their first thing is that no child, a child could do no wrong. You know, there's there's just this elevated sense of, I mean, Quakers, you know, they don't go to war. They don't conscientious objectors. They're peaceful people. They negotiate with anybody. And yet they took the mobster's money. It was all good. That's so, uh, so I don't know if we were, uh, Philadelphia was only like an hour away, um, from us. So kind of, kind of interesting. Um, how far were you from Doylestown? Do you know Doylestown? Sure. I was going to move up to Doylestown recently. I'm in Northwest suburbs called Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill. Ah, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I know exactly where you're at. Yeah. So um, the book takes place. So the got, story is he told me the story of the, of the book, the first book, the, uh, even the pandemic can't stop love and murder because it was related to a mob experience and he told me, but uh, so it's a true crime based book, but I can't use the whole story or I'd be very much in trouble at the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And others. What? Oh yeah. I'd be more concerned about the others. I think. <laughs> um, so what, uh, and, and obviously we can move on from it, but I, I'm just, I think a lot of people would be curious about it. What, like, can you share any like stories, um, you know, that wouldn't get anybody in trouble, like from your childhood with your dad that, that occurred, that would kind of be like outside of the box. It's already outside of the box. Most people don't have a dad in the mind, <laughs> but like, you know, I'm just curious. Well, um, when he, so, uh, when I first got engaged, after college, my uh, future mother-in-law said to my future wife, and what does his father do? And my future wife, who was very funny, said three to five. 
And, <laughs> and she said, pardon me? She said, well, yeah, he's in prison. And she goes, for what? And she goes, oh, bank fraud, mail fraud, you know, money laundering. And she goes, oh, white collar, not a problem. So in that three to five year period, I was in college and uh, he, um, coming out of college there, that whole area. And he insisted, uh, being the big personality that he was, that we come to Allenwood Penitentiary on Christmas Day and gave us exact instructions on how we were to dress, act, behave, bring, so he could be the king of the hill in front of all the other prisoners with their families visiting. So literally it was like, park in the no parking spot, get a limousine and a driver, wear your best suit, get all the boxes wrapped professionally. I don't care what's in them. I wanted to see professional boxes. I want you to walk, park the car and don't move it so everyone can see it. And then when you come up, sitting there, he's opening boxes. My sister and I were talking. I look over at his hand and there's this big brown triangle mark on his hand. And I, dad, what's, what's up with the mark? Oh, don't, don't worry about that. And rips open more boxes like the depression era kid he was. You know, didn't matter. It's just a ripping of the paper. I'm like, dude, what, what is that? He goes, oh, yeah, well, I was in the laundry, doing the laundry, and some guy had some, had it out for me, and he took a hot iron and threw it at me, and I blocked it with my hand. <laughs> that happened. Merry, Merry Christmas. So, <laughs> wow, Santa. So, I, uh, yeah, that was pretty much it. He said, and I said, and are you okay? He said, I'm fine. He said, the other guy, not so much. Oh my gosh. So wait, how did, um, and then again, I promise we'll move on for your dad. No, no, do whatever you want. It's, this is oh, part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So wait, where is your dad alive or did he pass away now? He passed away, uh, 2006. Uh, and 2006. Told me this, yeah, so where did you and him have like a good relationship all, all the way through, or I'm sure there's ups and downs here and there, but like, Oh really? The whole way. Well, you know, I was just, you know, in the Irish tradition, I was the one, one son, and I have his name, I'm a junior, so that made me the prince. Uh, so I always was with him, and he assumed that his little son playing with the soldiers on the rugs wasn't listening. Uh, but when things would happen, like, yeah, I'm going to do some work for the Catholic Church when the Pope comes to town in Philadelphia, and I'm doing these commemorative plates, I need to change my tax record so it looks like I made more money last year so I can get the investment from the bank. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Oh, well. So there were a lot of scenes like that growing up. Got it. And then as you got older, you kind of just decided you didn't really want to be a part when, of that. When, when I was 14, he called up because every Sunday or most Sundays, he would call up my sisters and I and say, I mean, you got divorced at seven, you call up and say, um, got a dinner in South Philly. I need to show up. Wear something nice. Okay. We did that for years. And what they would do is all the families, I mean, it's right out of the cliche. All the families in the front of the restaurant, kids and mothers and grandparents and the fathers making a huge racket. Dessert comes, coffee comes, all the men go in the back room and they tell the families to have at it to make enough noise to cover up the FBI bugs. So 14, he called me and I guess the Quaker thing was taking hold. And he said, I uh, got a dinner in South Philly. Your sisters are going next to Nuevo. And I said, dad, I am not going to any more of your mob dinners. Oh, shit. And that was the beginning of the, the end of our relationship, which ended up being fine, but it was always. Or. Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. And he yeah. was very, he was really, you just never knew what he was going to do or say next. Yeah, that's tough. 
Um, so now, and another part, and then I, you know, we'll move out of the intro too, because I want to talk about your book and everything. But for um, when you say disregards most of society's rules, what, what does that mean? <laughs> so he was a sociopath. And so I grew up in a household where society's rules were, dis were disdained. You cherry picked which ones you followed and believed in and embraced. Um, at least that's what I was told or I saw behavior, the behavior I saw demonstrated. So um, I think most rules are bullshit. I think that uh, I think they're made up either by people who just want to stay in control or things like that. But yet there are certain human rules that are not necessarily taught, but are wired inside us, which are the really they're, they're the ones we live by, we should live by. And that's kindness, decency, and empathy and humanity. Um, but not the rules that when you think about it, how hard is it to be kind to the person? How hard is it not to blame the messenger for the screwed up nature of their entire bank? Um, I worked in New York for 20 some years in advertising, and uh, it was a place where you didn't follow rules. You just, you know, you broke the rules to get ahead. Be successful. You never hurt people, but you just did whatever it took. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh my God. I was just watching um, on Netflix. It was maybe a couple months ago. I was watching the Bernie uh, Madoff. Um, uh, oh my God. Yeah. That is insane, man. I was like, I don't know. I was just my. I was watching it with my dad, and he's like, "Yeah, dude, this is this guy really went about as fraud as you can get." I know, I know, I know a guy, my uh, daughter's future father-in-law, um, he lost millions from Brady Madoff. Yeah. And see, you know what? That's what's so crazy to me is here. Actually. Yeah. We can talk about this real quick is obviously it's not funny in any way, shape or form, right? Like what he did right Probably. now. Here's the thing is, and a lot of, he's definitely not what, what he did. He, here's what me and my dad were talking about is it seems like he didn't really think, and this is an issue, but, and I'm not trying to, I'm not saying he's a good guy, but I just want to talk about this for a second. It doesn't seem like he realized in the moment how, like what the end effect would be to so many people. He was just so hyper-focused on like keeping the status of himself. Yeah. And, and, and so I don't, I'm just saying that like, it doesn't seem to me that he like, was necessarily wanting to like hurt people but but when it it's just but what it did is like it really hurt a lot of people you know it's, so it's the end result was terrible so there's no excuse for it but i'm just saying when people say he's like an evil man i'm like i don't think his intent was evil i think he just got very freaking wrapped up in his own like image and he it went so crazy out of control and um, again, he got what he deserved. He should be very in trouble. Yeah. But I well, just don't. But think I think the, I think I think the parallels is actually appropriate because my, I actually tell you, my father was not an evil man. He was just um, yeah, okay. abused. He was abused as a child uh, by a priest, and he was traumatized by that. And he was a sociopath and one of nine, the last of nine, and in a poor Irish family. So he did what it took to survive, using all his skills and wits, but he, and taught me that's the way you do it. Uh, the Quakers just had the overlay that you're supposed to do it ethically. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, yeah, he left that part out. <laughs> he left that part out. But yet, I saw him once give away the last $5 he had to a hippie friend of my sister's. And I said, mm -hmm. Dad, that was our last that was our last five bucks. What's because, oh, don't worry, it's money. 
But oh, yes, it was important for him to give that last meal to that hippie panhandling the park. Yeah, and you see, that's what I mean. Like, I and I do think when you judge somebody's character, like intent is is pretty important. At least judging character. Now, at the end of the day, an end result is an end result. So if you continue to do something, and even yeah. if it's not intentionally having, you're not wanting it to have a bad effect, but it does, and you keep mm -hmm. doing it, well, you know, that's still bad. But I'm just saying, it's not like your dad was like trying to hurt people. It's just, you know, he got caught up maybe in a bad situation and it was oh, yeah. toward his family. So, oh, yeah, the, the I knew many, many schemes. Went on. Yeah, and you and, love this. So when he got, went to trial, his older sister, older sister was a was a super nun, like on the board of directors of the Franciscans for the worldwide. And every day she rolled all her other nuns into the front pews of the courtroom behind him. Oh my god! <laughs> you gotta love it. This is you see the judge. Yeah, really, a room full of nuns. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he, he broke it all out whatever it took to win oh yeah you got a lot he told me what frankly up? he told me frankly if he didn't go to jail um he said if i tell the fbi what they want to know which i can't repeat it's it's a really big secret um he said that i i will uh you know i'll be fine and he said they don't really care about the money laundering he said but if i do tell them he said and i go to jail i'll be killed if i don't tell them i'll come out of jail with the job yeah yeah see and that now that was what i was gonna ask you too is it is it as people from the outside would perceive like because you always hear like once you're in the mob you're always in the mob like you can't really is that the way it kind of is and they try to maybe get you when you're young a little bit there's rings the outer rings they, they, they just tap into you when they need you you're just another you know another handyman which kind of yeah. where he was in the outer ring because he was irish he didn't really couldn't get that close into the the italian part Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So let's go a little bit deeper because obviously um, a lot of our audience is authors and aspiring authors just because yeah. based on. So tell us about um, and obviously you became a bestseller, which is awesome. Congrats on that. Um, tell us a little bit more. And actually, before you get into the content of the book, what mm -hmm. even like led you to to wanting to write a book? Did you think when you were younger, did you have any aspirations to do that? So, uh, yes, I was told at 14, uh, sitting on a beach in Beach Haven on the dunes, that I would be a novelist someday. And uh, it just took a while. I was inspired by a story he told me uh, over, over lunch uh, in Manhattan one time about um, him being part of a, a crew cleaning asbestos out of a mob bank. Uh, his crew didn't know it was a mob bank. It was a nighttime job. Um, and uh, they stole something. And uh, the next week was one long cat and mouse chase through Canada, New Jersey, looking for the stolen object with the hitmen, the state police, the FBI, my father. And as my dad said, uh, all hell broke loose and you don't want to know what happened in the end. Mm. That's the basis of the novel. Got it. And so wait, what was it at when you were 14? Uh, why did something? Just a voice. Told me. Oh, oh, okay. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. Um, and then now the book, you said what it was about, but what was it like writing it? Because I think I kept telling again, the story to my yeah, I kept telling the story to my wife, and she finally just looked at me, she was very pragmatic. And she just said, Then write it. 
you like it so much, just yeah. write it. So I was like, wow, <laughs> blind glyphs would be obvious. So I started writing and it was kind of fits and starts because I couldn't quite make it work. But as the pandemic hit and the isolation took place and I lost my wife in the beginning of the pandemic to cancer, um, it just became my isolation activity. I just wrote all day and all night for actually the last couple of years for two novels. It just came out. Wow. I hear uh, the characters. I don't yeah. see them. It's, it's, I, I don't understand the act of, I don't know how, how the imagination works, but when I am really tuned in and, and even tired sometimes, it's like walking past the window of a party, the window's open and I can see them doing their thing. If I stand close to the window, I can hear what they say. And half the time I record it on an app and then have it transcribed and then edit from there. So interesting. Um, so wait, let's tap in a little deeper to that. So, um, is there a way that you've come to find that like you're more, like when you said, stand closer to the window, are you, are you able to like tap in to hear these voices more or like, um, is it just completely random? My two characters named Ginger, one named Albie, she's very much in 1930s cinema. He's just a construction guy on, in the witness protection program. Um, very different characters. I, I hear them. I hear them speak. And I have to write it down as fast as possible. And then after that, I'm just the scribe making word clever sentences and making it, uh, filling in the narrative. But I hear them. I listen really closely. So interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I literally, um, uh, a couple hours ago, I uh, was talking to a potential client for a company and it's a kid who's 17 years old and he wrote 300,000 words, like a fantasy novel and he's 17. And I'm thinking to myself, I just think it's, you know, we're all the same in some regard, but we also obviously have differences. And like, for me, you know, mostly like business books, self-help books, I've yeah. never had like the even how to structure a, a fiction novel is just so foreign to me like i don't whereas business makes sense it's like okay yeah. here, here's a value that i can provide yeah. right um okay so this really is something that's kind of coming through you and then you're just putting it on yes paper. and i was actually very lucky that my editor ended up being um, a reiki healer editor for 40 years and also a reiki healer and trainer and she said i don't do thrillers i don't do your book and then I talked about it, and, and we together realized that it wasn't a thriller. It was a love story wrapped around a thriller. And she said, when she read the first draft, she said, there's a lot of healing and a lot of trauma going on here besides the crime and the, and the crazy bad guy um, and the cat and mouse story and chasing down the mob, things like that. She said, but there's different story going on here that you're kind of slipping in for people. So I have two readerships. I have this readership that is non-thriller readers who really tune into the traumas and the love, the trying the nascent love story the two characters, Ginger and Albie, are going through, which has nothing to do with the crime. There's no role, they have no role in the crime. I mean, it's just happenstance. They draw, they draw bad mojo to them um, as a couple. Uh, and um, you know, it just it's just the the way that they the interaction of that, and then I have a thriller audience who read my book, and they've gotten back to me and fed back interviews or reviews, and they're like, love it, love the murder, love the thrill, love the pace, love the chase, love this. So every scene's a cherry pick what they want from it, but my intent is to write a love story 
based in, in the reality of the time we live in. It's a few years in the future, but to me, life is the duality, once again, of good and evil, of life mm -hmm. and death, not versus and, because one never, ever wins against evil or death. You just move the pendulum. So that's what I do is I merge the dualities into stories. Got it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I have you ever heard of Alan Watts before? Okay. Okay. Amazing. I'm a big. I'm a big Alan fan. And, oh, are you? Okay. Yeah. 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 I'm a big fan. Um, and he says a lot of stuff kind of similar to how you said that, where it's like, uh, you know, people think like, um, or this is something he would say is like, you can't have life without death, and you and and he'll be like, somebody will ask him in the audience, what's it, um, what what's it like before you're born. And he's like, well, what's it like after you're dead? Yeah, that's what he, uh, and he's just so witty like that. And his voice is, you know, you can listen to him for hours. Like it's, it's yeah. great. Um, so just, it just reminded me of him when you said that. But you know, the sort of things you bring up, you talk about other authors, people who want to publish and of course be successful. Yeah. But I definitely say the lessons I've learned very clearly because I'm a marketing guy for 30 years out in New York. Yeah. Right. For successful marketing executive. Uh, but I did no research at all into how to market self-published books at all. I completely shut it down just to focus on the path of creation because it was so new and, and is so inspired that nothing else could get in the way um, and really yeah. take that, that, that speed, that velocity away. Um, yet, when I start to self-publish, I realized I was absolutely naive. I had not a clue what to do. And it was a very unusual thing because now I've realized in hindsight a few years later that you could take two paths. You can, I've talked to another writer who's doing a non-fiction book right now. And she took the path of research the heck out of the industry, research agents and publishers and the publishing and the model and the different venues and KDP and all those things. Then step back and do your outline and find your, and she did a very methodical, start with understanding the landscape, find your place in it, do that proposal. And yeah, it's not fiction, like you talked about earlier, but I think there's definitely two approaches. And I just, in some ways, unfortunately, but it's worked out. I took the inspiration approach because the words were flying so fast out of me, I had to get the story out. And I just did yeah. not want to solely it with marketing. But now I'm solely it every day. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, here, what else? Um, Because, you know, I know we, on the marketing side, we work together, right, in some regard. So, yeah. but what other stuff are you doing now for, for marketing? Is there, or do you have like, um, I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I do. I'm, I'm a consultant. I, I work um, for uh, pharma companies. Um, I did that for 20 years. Because yeah. my, so I lost my sister to melanoma. in 2000 and I went online I was the digital guy at the time for my family and some roles that you had understand her cancer and I was given the internet and I noticed anything out and there was nothing so when she died I was in the room and I looked her in, in the face and I said I will change my career to go work for pharma companies and convince them to spend money on patients and families to help them educate themselves so they make better choices. And I did that for the last 22 years. Yeah, man, that's a that's wild. Like well, um, mission mission driven work is a whole different is a whole way, whole different way to work. Because I can say something, they're not emotionally intelligent, a lot of clients like that. 
They're not particularly sensitive to patient needs because they're highly regulated by the FDA. They can't touch a patient, let's say. They can't directly communicate. So yeah. they were very, very arm's length from their customers, let's say. My job was to broach that chasm and help them find their way and spend millions of dollars along the way on behalf of patients and caregivers. So it worked out. I feel very proud. Yeah. No, I That's still what I do. I still do that. That's what I still do. Yeah, let's actually go a little deeper in that too, because I agree. I think, um, and this is kind of commonly talked about in the sense of, you know, it's not all, it's not just about the money. Don't work only for money. And I agree. Now, money is important, but I do think yeah. there's something very different. And this is where a lot of employees, I think, struggle. Um, meaning, like, when you run your own thing, it could be mostly for the money. Like for my company, right? It, it is somewhat money, but it's also I was solving my own problem. When I was younger, I I uh, came out with a book when I was nineteen twenty. I talked to all these publishers, none of them offered marketing. So I was like, oh, if I create a, and it was just, it was, it was honestly very much a struggle to figure out the marketing of a book. It just, mm -hmm. and nobody yeah. had an answer for me, nobody. So I was like, okay, if I can figure this out, not only will it solve my own issue, but I know other authors are going through this. It'll help yeah. them too. And then it becomes like very passion and mission driven because- yeah. You know, and maybe I'd say, you know, what you just said is definitely deeper than what I'm saying. But I do think, you know, a lot of authors will pour a couple of years of their life into a book. And then if it doesn't have any success whatsoever, it's a little bit de like demeaning, you know, it's like, oh, shit, I just put two years into this thing. Oh, so, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Who doesn't I, want to who doesn't want to be loved, Tyler? I do. There you go. <laughs> That's what it is. Right. So it's like, I mean, it's different, but like, I think that that is the kind of the thing about it is I remember when I launched my first book and, you know, it was just, it was hard, man. So either way, um, now are you, it seems like, uh, just based on what you said so far, you're going to continue writing, Like, how many books do you have now in total? I have, uh, two of a four part series. Okay. Even a pandemic can't stop love and murder. Even climate change can't stop love and murder. I just came out last November. Uh, these take place around 2025, 2026. Um, and uh, by the way, the pandemic has no pandemic really. And it's like a dark castle. There's no sick people in it. It's just, mm. as I like to say, it's a dark castle. The castle does not kill you. It just houses the really dangerous people. So, um, and then there's a third one I'm working on and a fourth one I have, I'm outlining. But meanwhile, my, my mind is taking me to a new novel, uh, which I've been thinking about for years, and I'm calling it uh, Decay of the Angel, A Memoir of Imagination. And it's based on um, a 1990s mayoral campaign in Philadelphia of what I know a lot about because my uncle was the candidate and I worked for him. So I took that story and I'm taking it and I'm going out here with it. And um, basically kind of on a famous novel called All the King's Men, that's the structure. There's a winner of uh, many prizes. Um, but it's definitely like the other day I was having another moment. I was frankly in the shower and all of a sudden I see the candidate in the, in the book talking to the guy, the, the other character, two main characters having dinner together and talking about do they trust people? What do you think of people? And I'm like, Oh, crap. So I jumped out, grabbed my phone, and just started recording it. So there's another one bubbling up. In there. Yeah. So, so right now, I have three in the hopper. Two done, three in the hopper. 
Korean hobby. Yeah. So anyway, the memoir one though, is that like, that's not fiction then, right? Like, because that's. It will be. Oh, will be. Oh, oh yeah. That's why I say it's a memoir of imagination because. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. It's that, that cool. I know. And then you often talk about, oh, write what you know and things like that. And well, frankly, yeah, I wrote about the mob father a little bit, but uh, no, this is more. Um, Right, we know, but take it so far to another place that that was not possible. So it has no basis upon reality when it's done, but it still has that germ of the same mayoral race, a candidate race, a dark horse race in a large urban city. So, gotcha. All the dirty crap that goes with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I saw like some, I saw some real corruption. Oh my God. Tell us more. What do you mean? <laughs> well, it's nothing like nothing like going around the day of an election and buying votes. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I can't imagine that. Yeah, yeah. I um, <laughs> yeah. it is so crazy. I I actually um, we've started to partner with a lot of political consultants because uh, what happens is they're now a lot of political consulting firms are recommending to their political clients to write a book and become a bestseller because it'll help them right. win the race. Of course. Um, right. So we started partnering with a lot of them and right. doing it. It's very interesting, right? Like the stories, I don't know. It's just interesting. <laughs> I've heard some. Uh, yeah. Some, well, let's, let's just see who's, who's fact checking those books. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah. yeah. Not me personally. So yeah, I was gonna say, no, I don't get to hear that stuff for sure. No, but I think you know, but going back to what we're talking about, which is you know, the helping other authors, I would just say that you know, authors, if they're looking for marketing support in the world or or services, because like you said brilliantly, it was uh Tommy Rossa, it was a blank slate for you to walk into and you and, and you've done a great job. But I did I've done a lot of research and there are there's a lot of uh blood sucking. And let's just say um, a lot of taking advantage of someone's dream uh, mm-hmm. and basically squeezing their wallet until they feel anything or something or just go away. Famous author. I went to her website. Someone told me to read her book and book about how she didn't like the industry, not just her novels, but actually her her, her own experience. Her name was Rush um, of coming to the industry and learning. It's a great book. But when I went to her website, there's her husband giving mystery writing seminars and a series of classes over months. And I'm thinking, okay, that's great. And yes, people help that. But I thought, why would I do that? I know how to write a mystery. I've written two, but but it doesn't help me market it. It just helped me create it. So suddenly I'm sitting there with this creation and I've spent thousands of dollars. And now I have thousands more to go to even try to figure out how to get out into the world to find readers. So I, I find that the... The parasitic nature of self-publishing is very, very large and very difficult to wade through. Very difficult. There are very few ethical players. Yeah. You being truly an exception. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. I think one of the like important lessons out of that is, and I, this happens to so many authors, and I know this because, again, we're a lot of times on the marketing side. We do the publishing and writing too, but we are on the marketing side. So we're more of the the end of when an author gets to us. And mm-hmm. there has been so many occasions. I mean, I guess it's almost every occasion that an author gets to us. And by the time they get to us, they cannot believe that they just, in the beginning, they had no idea how much of an investment of money that was going to go in to make it successful. 
And they're like, oh my God. They're like, I've already spent tens of thousands to have it written. Uh, maybe, you know, right. a couple thousand or 10,000 to have it published. And now um, you're coming to me. And then it's like 10, sometimes even six figures to have it marketed effectively. And they're like, yeah. oh my God, I just, I'm a quarter million in. Like it, it can literally get that wild, right? Um, right. Oh, oh. So where do, where do you appear? So what happens is people don't have that money. They run to a point, yeah. get to a point where their dream is crushed by their empty wallet. Yes. Yeah. So what it, what happens? And it's true for nonfiction because nonfiction you have the, the ability to create a platform and a model and revenue streams from the ideas. Uh, yes. Whereas fiction, it's you know it's finding your readership. It's finding your readership and in a sense always keeping them close to you and not betraying them, but also not dulling them out. Uh, mm -hmm. But finding your readership is the big one. And there's a there's a lot of noise. And a lot of people who are just what you realize the imperfection is you have to write for love. You have to write because you're compelled to write because there is no guarantee at all that you will ever find your readers. True. That's so true. And I think that what this comes down to is I do want to make sure I say this too, is that yes, you can spend a ton of money on everything, but you don't necessarily have to, right? It's not, right. it's not, but if I do agree, because with nonfiction, it's a little bit easier with, or a lot easier with targeting, right? Because it's like, oh, I wrote a book on how to be successful with Facebook ads or so. Let's just say, okay, well, every company needs help with Facebook ads. So I just need to get this in front of those companies and then it'll work itself out. But with fiction, it's like, I, I guess the psychology behind it, right? Would be, okay, who am I similar to? Right. Like, is this like James Patterson? Like who, what, what are these? Well said. Right. And right. Then the, the analogs, basically the other analogs. Yes. And then once you discover that, then you can target and you could do this through paid advertising and it doesn't have to be paid, but you, either way, you, at least you can find those people and be like, okay, this is a similar uh, genre. Well, I mean, what happens if, what happens if you're bending the genre? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd have to be so similar for it to fully function properly. But I mean, yeah, you're right. It could be the horseshoes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> get close to so, get close to the stake. Yeah, get close. But it's not like playing darts. Yeah, so. yeah. No, totally. Because like, I mean, and I'm positive on this, and I haven't done it specifically for for. I'll just use James Patterson as it. But like, I'm sure on Facebook, if you went, he has a Facebook page or something. It probably oh, has. I've been there. Yeah, it probably has hundreds of thousands, millions of likes, millions. you know, probably millions. Yeah. Um, you know, so if that's true, which it is, then you could essentially target your books to his, because uh, Facebook allows you to target to all the people that like a page um, and you get it in front of all those people, you know? So, but again, they like James Patterson. They don't know who you are, but if... It's similar, and I get this would be opinion too. So it gets a little weird. Like it's hard. It gets weird. Yeah, yeah. it's not. Yeah, that's why it is such a crapshoot and an act. And like I said, an act of love in the end. But you need good marketing, and you need to have people who you can trust to basically say, "Here is my act of love." Um, I don't know enough or or want to about marketing it, but I know who I think my audience is or whatever. Or I found them before by myself or things like that. But the idea of having trusted partners or trusted venues, because I've tried everything. I've tried Kirkus reviews, which I was told by a publisher, you have to get a Kirkus review for your, your book. And if they give you a bad review, they publish it anyway, and you're doomed. But if you give a review, it's like a 
big check mark for other uh, agents and things like that because they review for publishers, Kirkus. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, um, they will sell you ads, which for thousands of dollars, which are useless. Uh, yeah. Facebook, if you don't know the Facebook meta game, get the training because it's really the meta interface is really, really difficult for targeting. It's not as yeah. easy. It's great, but it makes a rabbit hole look very shallow. Yeah. So <laughs> it's down the path. And, and you know, things like you have to understand that Twitter is not the end answer. Twitter is an information machine. Instagram is not an activation acquisition model. It's an awareness builder. You know, TikTok is not, you know, about acquisition at all. It's just getting your voice in there and getting being as ubiquitous as you can with your brand, personal brand. And actually, maybe that comes back to saying it's, it's part of the commonality between fiction and nonfiction is in the end, it is the personal brand of the author. You know? Yeah. So what did you start with? You started with my my contradictory childhood of being raised a Quaker, living with a mobster father. So, you know, that's yeah. my brand. That is the brand that that's just who I am now. Uh, and it was shaped to be. And so how I market that through my books and use that to gain attention is a big part of what I've learned along the way is that that personal brand is very important, even in fiction. But if you're just doing it out of love or just or just an idea came to you in the bathroom one day, um, it might not work out so well for you. You know, it's not. Yeah. An editor once said to me, 99, no, 100% of people have a book in them. And she said, but 99% never get it down on paper. It's true. We all have stories. Oh, totally. And I like that what you just said there too, because a lot of times like people will be like, oh, that person has a million Instagram followers. They must be rich. Here's the truth. Most of people that have a bunch of followers online, it, it, it behind the scenes, it's not what it looks like, right? Like it's, it's not necessary. It's not acquisition, right? right. So many people that have millions of followers on TikTok and they're still living at home with their parents. <laughs> like it's just a trick, right? Wait, what's wrong with living at home with your parents? I'm just kidding. Actually, nothing. I love my parents. So my yeah, I'm just saying, is that your dad back there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is my parents' house. <laughs> yeah, sure, Columbia, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Columbia, Maryland is where you are. So <laughs> no, dude, anyway, that's so right. but I think I think that but that's what I, I learned working also with you is yeah. it was it deepened my knowledge that you cherry pick your venue really carefully to know how to spend your money. You can test, but you learn on the cheap is the best way to do it and to exclude, exclude. Don't be everywhere doing everything. Be the places you find yourself most naturally suited, social media or Facebook, whatever it is, and be there, but be active and be that presence. So when people do start to read you, there's a log and you're in the search fields, you're in the indexing, you're, you know, you're a presence already. People pick it up and go, oh, I had no idea. Let me read some more. So. A hundred percent. And I think too, like what it is, is at least out there, like you were saying in the industry, and that's what I think makes us a little bit different is there's, there's a lot of companies out there that'll sell you like, Hey, we'll do your social media posting for you, or we'll do And it's like, but wait, what's the result, right? So for me, whenever I'm looking at something, I always want a guaranteed result. And I know not everything can be guaranteed. So I'm not naive. I did enough. it. I did yeah. it. I, I did but, it. What a waste of money. I what know, a man. waste of money. Dude, I've done it too, actually. And it's why it's another reason why I built it like SEO, right? For SEO. And I want to be like, look, there's great companies out there that can do it. But I've tried to hire five, six SEO companies in my day. 
mm-hmm. dude. And they're like, Hey, you'll see results in like six months. Just keep paying us monthly. And not, nothing, just literally 100, 200 grand just down the drain. But, you know, it's like learning lessons along the path. But right. I, I finally just got fed up. I'm like, dude, I'm not paying. I'm not paying anymore for these like maybes. Like if I'm paying for well something, yeah. I want what I freaking am paying for, dude. <laughs> like it's that simple. <laughs> like, right, paying for the book. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, I digress on that. But uh, what I want to do is... Um, so if there's anything we didn't cover, I want to leave it to you just because we're coming up on time soon. Um, yeah. Let us, um, if there's anything we didn't cover that you want to share, please do. And then let people know um, if kind of funny, full circle, let everybody know your social media's website and where they can stay in contact with you. <laughs> well, it's pretty simple. So um, I am on TikTok um, yeah. and, and I basically do it. It's at uh, AE, AES, the author, uh, but also my web, the author's, website the anchor site is uh www.evenloveandmurder.com which i think is a pretty good url mm-hmm. evenloveandmurder.com um so uh that's pretty much and i'm on facebook under under you know alfred o'neill things like that but the main one that you can find me reach me email me would be either my facebook page but mostly the evenloveandmurder.com because there's the reviews there's a sample there's a sample of an audiobook um so because i did the audiobook version of this i hired a guy from random house that does random house stuff so that's where you would find me um also please if you ever buy the book uh uh, review is golden as you know reviews are golden on amazon and uh so far mine are mostly five star thank goodness um and i would just say that uh for those writers out there write what you love start with that and go out from there whether it's fiction or nonfiction. just write what you love Right, wherever you know, wherever you love. And for um, myself, I would just say people who are looking for stories that are really are about love and trauma, love and death, love, life and murder. Um, that's the that's the themes I really keep to. But I do it in a very, the love story is a true love story. It's not, um, uh, let's just say, drop the pants on the detective uh, and the wife of the murdered guy suddenly get together in the middle of the crime. It's a love story. It just has me surrounded by a lot of screwed up events. Mm-hmm. So that's my style of approaching things. Dude, thank you. Uh, this actually was, um, cause I didn't know we were going to talk about, like, I didn't know the mobster father part. So I was excited about that. So thank you again for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Tyler, my pleasure. Thank you so much for helping so many people. I really appreciate it.